Hi, I'm Tammy Tan, owner of Spice Hound. And I'm Christine Dorr, owner of Neococo. And we are co-owners of Kitchen 519, our shared-use commercial kitchen in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Let Us Wrap, the podcast about food, food business, and the people who work in the industry. Today is ice cream day. Ice cream. You scream. We all scream for ice, ice cream. cream. <laughs> hey. So what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Well, take a guess. Oh, okay. What's your favorite, <laughs> your second favorite flavor of ice cream that is not chocolate? <laughs> okay. Oh, God. Is there anything else? Uh, mint. Oh, you like mint. Do you like, okay, mint chocolate chip? Yes, of course. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Can you, is there a mint that doesn't have chocolate chip? <laughs> what about you? Uh, cookies and cream. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I love cookies and cream, but I, I'm, I'm also a uh, a purist. I do actually like a good vanilla. <laughs> Let me preface that. Like, I don't tend to like I, I French vanilla or super beanie vanillas. You know? Yes or no? Did you say super beanie? Yes, 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 yes. To super beanie. The, no, the to little pieces of the the flex. Yes. yes, I like that. So, have you had a chocolate taco before? I actually have never had a choco taco. Me neither. My first experience is actually with Lori, who we have today, uh, Rocco's Ice Cream Tacos. I guess that's starting at the top, isn't it? We're going for the gourmet ice cream (laughs) tacos. Start at the best. Yes. And then uh, never go back, (laughs) actually. Welcome, Lori. Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah. so, So who is Rocco? Yeah. Rocco is the name of one of my dogs. And when the idea for the business came up, we thought it would be um, just a great, funny, uh, rhyming name to call it Rocco's Choco Tacos. And as the business evolved, we changed a way to make it a more descriptive um, title for the product. So because what we make are ice cream tacos and they're not all definitely covered in chocolate, even though that's one of my favorite ways to have it, um, we decided to call it ice cream tacos instead of chocolate tacos so that people really can understand based off of the name what we're doing. So how many dogs do you have? I have two dogs. So one is Rocco and the other one's name is Ace. And we do have a product um, that we sell called an Ace Cream Cake Pop, which is a mixture of ice cream and cake. So we had to come up with something so that the other dog wasn't completely left out. (laughs) I saw that. I was wondering, okay, what was Ace? Or you were just trying to be cute about that too. Ace Cream Cake Pop. That's awesome. So how about talk about a little bit about your background? Um, where did you, what did you study? And So I um, was born and raised here in the Bay Area and went to school um, in Santa Cruz where I studied neurobiology. And then I did a PhD at Stanford where I studied immunology. And towards the end of my degree at Stanford, I um, decided that I was really interested in business development. And so I went to the graduate school of business at Stanford and started taking classes on entrepreneurship. And I did a summer long intensive course on startups um, where we formed groups and went through um, iterations of startup launching ideas, all based around science. So it was groups of scientists and engineers who would come up with a business idea and pitch it in a, I guess, a six week summer session. So after going through that, I had decided that I really was interested in entrepreneurship. But also at that time, I was finishing up my PhD and changing my own eating habits. I was in a book club with a lot of my science girlfriends, um, and we'd read The Omnivore's Dilemma. And it really changed the way I thought about what I was eating and the food chain and how food is grown locally or not so locally. And so at that time, I started thinking about the things that I like to eat and where those things were coming from. And all of these things sort of coalesced um, for me. And I, when I was interested in starting a business, I thought back about... The, the products that I love and ice cream was one of the things that I love growing up. And my dog's name is Rocco. And I thought I'm going to have to start an ice cream business called Rocco's Chocolate Tacos. And it was a joke for the first part of, you know, just mulling it over and thinking about it and talking about it with my friends and a late night session of me where I should have been working on my thesis turned into me on Amazon buying a waffle iron to start messing around <laughs> with waffle cone recipes. 
Um, so it was all just a creative outlet for me as I was finishing my PhD. And once I had a prototype of a product and served it to some friends at a dinner party, they were the ones to convince me that, no, this is this is good enough that it's not just a dinner party thing. This, you need to go and push this forward. So that really became my driving force for, okay, I'm interested in business development. I have this wacky idea for a business. Let's just do it. So I took some inheritance money and bought an ice cream cart and went down to my local farmer's market and found some partners there and figured out how to, how to start this thing in the last few months of me wrapping up my PhD. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> That's just crazy. I mean, like we went Rocco's, he should be a taco. And it should be an ice cream taco. Correct. Yes. <laughs> and, and then have you experienced ice cream tacos before that? or So um, the original Choco Taco was invented in 1982 by a man named Alan Dresden in New Jersey. And um, it was sold by ice cream trucks. And I used to get them at Taco Bell when I was growing up in the 80s. So you could go to Taco Bell and get your regular tacos and then you can order a Choco Taco for dessert. I used to love the product as a kid. And then as an adult, had another one and realized that it just didn't live up to what nostalgia told me that it should be. And that was really my goal was to, I'm going to recreate a product that I love from my childhood and make it taste like what my brain remembers it tasting like. So I imagine you had a business plan when you started. (laughs) Um, No, no. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I think that I've always had an idea of what it was supposed to be or where I wanted it to go, but I never had a formal business plan written down. Did you, for your entrepreneur class, did you present the ice cream taco? No. So so you never worked through it? No. So we, um, in the entrepreneur course that I was taking, we were working on an idea for cancer treatments using nanotechnology for pets, for dogs. That was the, the business idea that we were pushing forward in that course so something completely different do do you wish you had a business plan or did you you Um, back and say do you go back and see other entrepreneurs and say you should have a business plan or you don't need a business plan (laughs) i mean my advice would be that if business plans need to be tailored for the specific need right if you're presenting who who needs to see your business plan if you're pitching to a funding source they want to see certain things if you're going to a bank for a loan they want to see certain things so your business plan is not going to be it's kind of like a a resume or a cover letter it needs to be tailored specifically for the person or group of people that you're you know wanting to show this to or asking for something so even from. if even if you had a business plan it would have to be it would change for right. whoever you're presenting right. it to. Right. It would be tweaked for the purpose that you're presenting it for. And so knowing that if you're starting out, you should have definitely an idea and a, a rough rubric for how you want things to go and long-term vision. And I always had long-term vision for what I wanted the company to be, but that has definitely morphed and grown as the business has grown. And you know, I've received different advice from people in the food industry about, you know, choices that you have to make about what sector you want your product to be in and different choices that you make for, you know, ingredients that you put in or don't put in and the product that you want to make at the end and how that product sits in a market space. And you have to decide what sector of the market you want it to be in if that's your end goal, or if your goal is to focus on the product that you want to make, then you have to figure out what sector of the market does this fit in. So work forward instead of work backwards type of thing. So when your idea, you knew right away, you're going to have this food truck and these carts, right? Yeah. Was in your plans always having that brick and mortar? Yes. So So you're still pursuing whatever is in your head. So so where do you, where's the twist where you pivoted a little bit? When I started, I didn't really have any expectations of whether this would be a product that would sit on a retail store shelf, like something you would buy from the grocery store or something that you can only get at one of our shops, one of the Rocco's ice cream taco shops. And that's really the 
decision and the pivot point that I had to decide at some point. So once you get to a certain point, you have to decide, is this an artisanal product that we're going to focus on creating a product that isn't necessarily so shelf stable? And for our product, because it's handmade, there's a lot of margin um, problems when you talk about producing a a product in mass that's going to sit on a retail store shelf. So a packaged product that you get from Safeway or Whole Foods, even from the freezer aisle, that product has a co-packer and a distributor. And then the store itself, that all is going to take a margin off of your product, which tax on the end price point. So if you want to have a reasonable sale price and you, you know, this person's going to take 10%, the store is going to take 15%. And when you whittle it all the way back, how cheaply can you make your product? And for the product that we're making, we can't make it cheap enough because it's so labor intensive to make, to really make it a viable store shelf product. And then also looking at um, shelf life. So when you're selling at a grocery store, different stores have different requirements for how long they want your product to be able to sit on the shelf. And so when you're trying to formulate your product, there's you know, stabilizers and uh, preservatives that we didn't want to put into the product. So that really weighed on my decision to to tailor this for an artisanal sold in our stores only type of product. So in the beginning, you thought that you potentially would have a, a, pro- a shelf stable product that could go into a grocery store, but now you've realized it has to be in your own stores. Yes. And I think that, I mean, the product can certainly be formulated to sit on a store shelf. It just hasn't been our focus. And that was really the choice. Either you can focus on making a really good artisanal product that you can uh, craft and sell in your shops, or you can pivot and reformulate this product for something that is going to be shelf stable and be able to make it through a distribution process. There's other products too that are that are sort of sensitive and like heat sensitive and how they're transferred and handled. But ice cream specifically, you just don't know what happens once the product leaves your hand. So it's going to go into somebody's storage freezer and then it's going to go onto their refrigerated trucks and then it's going to go into the grocery store freezers. Uh, And there's just so many levels of transfer that happen that once it's outside of your hands, you don't have control over what happens to the product. So if, you know, it gets to a high enough temperature where there's melt and then refreeze, that changes the consistency of your product. So, a lot of ice cream makers sort of prep their product for that heat shock that they know is going to happen inevitably by adding stabilizers. And we didn't want to do that. Um, a lot of ice cream companies get around this by doing self-distribution so that they don't have to put as much stabilizer in their product because they have more control over the distribution process. But I mean, I've, I've been to Safeway at 2 a.m. and seen people restocking freezers and you can walk down the aisle and there's ice cream just sitting out oh. waiting to be put away. Pain. And my heart, yeah, just aches for whatever that manufacturer was because something is happening to their product that, right, is going to change the consistency and the taste and they don't have control over that at that point. There's also the other side to it too, right? Like, you know, there's so, uh, as a mom, I'm going to bring home the product. I'm going to forget about it in the car sometimes or I'm I'm have a long route home. I mean, it's also gonna melt with my own transfer, I guess right, from the store. For sure. And people come into the store and they order things to go and, you know, we try to bolster it a little bit. We freeze our ice cream tacos using liquid nitrogen. So if somebody orders something to go, we'll hold it in the nitrogen for a little bit longer to really try to freeze the products solid all the way through just to give them a couple of extra minutes to get it home and to get it into their freezer. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. (laughs) (laughs) Talk since uh, if people are not familiar with your product, they come into your store, they... They decide that they want an ice cream taco. We do normal scoops as well. Um, obviously, we try to convince people that the ice cream taco is the way to go. And I mean, there are definitely ice cream purists out there who just want a scoop of ice cream. And that's great. But we really try to advocate, um, right? This is something different. It's a little bit unique. It's really just a fancy shaped ice cream cone and a fun way to enjoy 
eating an ice cream cone, but that's really what it is. It's a cone. It's just shaped like a taco shell. And then in the shop, we'll fill it with up to two ice creams of your choice. We usually have 12 ice creams that sit in our um, ice cream cabinet along with, um, so 10 regular and two vegan flavors. So you choose up to two ice creams. We'll stuff the little taco shell with your ice cream of choice. And then we'll custom dip it in a variety of chocolate. We also have a peanut butter dip. And then there's toppings that you can add your cheese and your lettuce and all the stuff that you would put your guacamole and sour cream that you would put on top of a regular taco, right? We have almonds and sprinkles and cocoa nibs and coconut and right things that you can put on top of your ice cream taco. So you choose, right? Whatever sort of combination taco you want. And then um, we'll dip it in the chocolate. We'll roll your toppings on it. And then we flash freeze it in liquid nitrogen. The nitrogen is really a key step for it to solidify everything together. We keep our dipping cabinet a little bit warmer than a normal ice cream shop because in order to get the the ice cream into the taco shell without breaking that shell um, is sometimes a a difficult process. So to make it easier on our taco wranglers, which is what we call our scoopers in the shop, we keep the ice cream a little bit softer so that it's easier to get the ice cream into the taco shell. And then the nitrogen is there to sort of refreeze everything and firm it up so that you have enough time to eat your entire taco without it melting all over you. And I've seen that and it's like a little canister. Yeah, it's called a doer. So a lot of people ask me, how the PhD has helped or how, you know, having a PhD in immunology relates to making ice cream tacos. And right, I talk a lot about chemistry and right formulating ice cream. There is a lot of, right, it is food science is science, right? There's chemistry involved in making any type of food. But specifically for ice cream, when we're formulating our recipes, it's important to know how the different ingredients in your ice cream play together or don't play so well together and how it affects the freezing point um, of the ice cream, things like that. But then also for us specifically, because we're using liquid nitrogen, that when I first started making these things for friends, there's an intermediate step in every part of the step of the way. So you're going to put the ice cream inside your taco shell. And then if you were making this at home without liquid nitrogen, you would put it back in the freezer and let the ice cream firm up again. Then you would dip it in a liquid chocolate and sprinkle it with your toppings, and then you would put it back in the freezer again to let it firm up. And that's just not feasible for serving something to a customer in a reasonable time frame. So that's when, right, being from a lab, working in a lab, having that background sparked for me, that if I want to serve these things to a customer, how do you freeze something quickly? And in the lab, that answer is liquid nitrogen. So that's where that idea came from, that if we're going to serve these things without having to put it back in the freezer at every every intermediate step, the answer was to just flash freeze it in liquid nitrogen. It's spectacular to watch because it looks, right, it's you dip something into the canister and it produces steam. Most people People are uh, very familiar with dry ice and how that smokes and liquid nitrogen sort of smokes in the same way. And so it looks, you know, like, ooh, what's happening over there? So there's a visual draw to it, which is great, but it's also integral to what we do. We wouldn't be able to serve the ice cream tacos like we do without the use of liquid nitrogen. So when you were first exploring your storefront and everything, you didn't see anybody else has a similar idea that you have, or were you able to see anybody that you can sort of use as an example? So I talked to Tasha Case, who's the owner of um, an ice cream company called Cool House, and they're based in LA. They make ice cream cookie sandwiches. And I went down and had a chat with her about um, this goes back to making a decision versus having a retail product versus a scoop shop product. And in talking with Natasha, I've figured out that um, for them, they made the decision. They have a couple scoop shops, but at their um, inflection point, they made the decision that they were going to be retail focused. So they do most of their business wholesaling and they formulate a product to be packaged. And that's the growth trajectory that she chose And that talking to her about the vision that she had for her company helped me sort of clarify what I wanted for my company and looking around the ice cream atmosphere for what is happening. The larger chain scoop shops have 
a lot of them have gone away, right? Baskin Robbins is still around. Cold Stone is still around. Uh, Marble Slab. Those are the only ones that I can really think of. But in recent times, those are shrinking. And what you really see is an artisanal ice cream movement. And one of the artisanal ice cream makers that I have seen that are expanding and they do it scoop shop by scoop shop. So it's, they're not focused on a retail product. They are focused on scoop shops is salt and straw. And so they started as a small artisanal maker in Portland. And now they've expanded to maybe 12 to 15 shops all up and down the West coast. And so I look to them for how they've decided and um, to scale their product and the success that they've had. And that's a model that I would like to follow because it's it's an artisanal maker that has scaled up one by one. The other one that I can think of that before Salt and Straw did it was Jenny's out of Ohio. And now Jenny's has been big enough to, she's been acquired by right a larger company. So they have a really widespread distribution. And right, like thinking about a business plan, I don't know if if I was fortunate enough to scale it up to the level that I would, you know, someone would want to acquire it and take it national. At that point, you just have to make a decision for what you want your day-to-day life to be and to make that decision to, to go national. Do you want to personally own each scoop shop or, you know, potentially are you looking for franchising or? So it's something that I have talked to a lot of people about and I get asked about a lot. Um, I personally don't like franchising and I have to do a little bit of self-exploration to figure out why I don't really like franchising, but on the base surface of it, I, I like the idea that somebody who's making the product is connected deeply to the product, that they have a passion for the product. Um, and that's not to say that somebody who just buys into a subway or a McDonald's or, any other number of franchises isn't passionate about their product, but there's something special about I've built this thing that I've been a part of the building of this brand or this product, as opposed to, I just bought a piece of it. And so I would like the branches of Rocco's. If we get there, each should be run by somebody who is more fully invested in the company than just, I plopped down some money and bought myself a store. So your one-year plan is to see how your store, because you're brand new, you opened the store this year. So see how it goes for the first year. And then the next step is potentially getting store number two. Correct. Versus truck number two or cart number four. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So the first shop that we bought, I looked for years, really, uh, to find a location that would service the business uh, moving forward. So Right. Like I didn't have a business plan written down, but I knew that the first step of growing this thing to a multi-store business was to have a production facility. And I went back and forth uh, a lot between having an offsite production facility, just a kitchen where everything is produced, and then a small little retail shop where you truck things in and sell from your shop versus having your like a factory store. And I always really wanted the factory store just because it's easier to have everything under one roof. But I looked for two years for something that could service as a factory store. And right during that time would always go back and forth of, can I do this from splitting it up? Because that might be easier to find just a production kitchen separately from a small little retail shop, because there's different concerns about um, you. You want your retail shop to be in a place where you're going to get foot traffic. That doesn't matter for your production center if it's just a production center, but looking at um, having them separated versus having them together, for me, my preference was to have everything together because I am a single owner. I don't have a business partner. So to oversee both things in different locations was going to be harder for me to do. So having everything under one roof allows me to still run it and oversee the things that I need to oversee without having a business partner. So we have a production kitchen that also has a lot where we can park our truck and a storage unit where we can store our carts and the retail shop in front where we can sell our product. And so this spot was sort of a Xanadu 
spot. Uh, and so that's why it took so long for us to find it. But I was fortunate enough to find it. And um, so the first year is about really streamlining the things that need to be occurring in the space for it to function as a production facility, but then really making sure that it functions well enough that it can then scale so that we can produce from that one facility to supply not just that little retail store on site, but now a second retail store somewhere else in the Bay Area. And so that's what year two will be about is I'll start looking for a small retail location somewhere else. And then we'll be able to ramp up production from the primary site to supply ice cream for both stores. So let's get back to the question about partnership. Why did you not decide to take on a partner or did you even consider it? Um, I, I didn't really consider it. So at the start, when I uh, launched this business, it was just a solo venture and I, have been approached a couple of times by people who were interested in partnering, but taking on a business partner is basically like getting married, right? Like it's a really important decision. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been cautioned by other people who have started businesses and took on a business partner that didn't pan out and what has happened to their business in the aftermath of that. And so I was very careful in making that decision. Um, I thought about bringing in my best friend who would have been um, happy to partner with me, but she's too similar to myself. So we don't bring, she doesn't bring something extra to, to the partnership that she doesn't fill in the things that I lack so much as she doesn't compliment me as much as we're right. Two of the same person, which is not helpful. So while I would have loved to have her, it just wasn't the right fit. Um, and then I, like I said, I have had other people approach me who do bring, I, so I have no business experience at all, right? Like I come from a background of science. I've taken enough business courses to know what I don't know, right? That's what they tell you in these courses, right? Like this will give you a taste of, so like you understand all of the missing pieces. So at least you can go out and find somebody to help you with those missing pieces. So that something doesn't fall through the cracks that you don't even know about, right? At least, you know, these are the pieces that I'm missing and how do I plug those holes? So it's, I know enough about business to be competent, but I, right. I think that it would benefit from somebody who's solely focused on growing the business. I've been uh, much more focused on the quality of the product and now that that is shorn up, now I have to shift my focus into really doing the thing that I set out to do, which was business development, right? That's why I started this whole thing was to learn about business development. And, um, right, I have been able to learn the pieces along the way. I started from a cart. I was able to grow that to multiple carts in a truck. Now I have a store and, right, really learning about now I'm at the level of staff management and how you manage a um, a young staff, a staff that uh, typically has high turnover in a retail market like ice cream or a bakery, things like that, where you're employing high school and young college kids and really figuring out how to make your business successful with the type of turnover that you have there and still adding value to your employees' lives. That's at this stage, and I always knew it was going to be this way, profitability has dropped, right? Because now I have larger overhead. I have more employees. And at this step of the business, it's it was important for me to evaluate, again, what I wanted for the long-term vision. If I wanted maximum profitability, then I should have stayed lean and run it as lean as possible. But for me, it was about growing the product, getting it into more hands, and then also creating jobs for people, right? So at, at the end of the day, there isn't as much money in my bank account, but I've employed 15 people and they're contributing to society and helping people and learning important job skills, that that was more important to me than maintaining maximum profitability. How has it been employing young workers? So it's, I'm fortunate in that I'm situated next to a university where there is a lot of young people looking for a job and it's easy to find a working force. Um, It's different. And I have friends who have ice cream shops in San Francisco and like trying to find somebody who is looking for a part-time basically minimum wage job who needs to be able to afford living in San Francisco. It's a very different proposition than the proposition I'm running down in Santa Clara. So I've been fortunate to be able to, to have a, 
a large body of people who are looking for the opportunity that I'm able to provide. Um, and then it's about managing expectations. So being able to provide them something that they are looking for, but then also being able to have something that is stable for me. And there is a bit of a balance because you want to give them flexibility and they need the flexibility because they have classes and other activities that they're working in. Um, but then also being able to toe a line and saying, I'm okay if you, you know, if something comes up and you need to change your schedule, but right. There's a certain, there's a certain level at which you're learning how to be a functioning member of society and hold a real job. And that means that there are real responsibilities that you need to be able to hold up. And if you can't, then right. That's, this is a learning experience for you. You're not going to be able to hold this job because you can't meet these responsibilities. But as a 19 year old or a 20 year old, those are things that you need to learn about as you're getting ready to enter the workforce. Why is ice cream pints so expensive? Like when you go to the grocery store, like they can be from how, what range even? Like yeah. So $15, $15 I think yeah. is pretty standard. So depending on your starting ingredients. So if you're talking about something that is organic and using organic ingredients versus non, that'll increase your price. So starting from there, the quality of ingredients you're putting into your ice cream. So you're covering your ingredients and your manufacturing costs. Then, as I said earlier, when you're not selling directly to a customer, you have a distribution channel that you go into. So usually large scale ice cream producers have a co-packer. So this is somebody else who helps you package up your product. They're going to take some piece of the pie. So then you right if you start it, it costs us three dollars to produce this pint now the co-packer is going to require a certain amount of money to co-pack it and then the distributor is going to require a certain amount of money to distribute it and then the store is going to require a certain amount of money to house it and sell it so each step of the process tax on more money to what that pint costs so at the end of the day right you're paying ten dollars for a pint of ice cream the person who produced it might be making a dollar off of that pint, maybe. Like a tenth. Yeah. And that's why um, things are either very expensive at the end of it, or the person who is producing it is focused on a volume game, right? Because they're only making a buck off of the pint. Now they have to sell a bunch of pints for it to be a worthy proposition for them to even make it. And right, a dollar might even be generous. I know certain products where people's margins are like, 12 cents is what they're actually making on the product. <laughs> yeah. And what sometimes ice creams you see, they're very inexpensive. How do, with that idea in mind, how do they produce something so inexpensive? Uh, scale. So a lot of ice cream manufacturers, the, the big ones, the big players, they have large scale factories where the work being done to produce the ice cream is usually not a person. It's a big machine that gets loaded in and so volume has allowed them to scale up to the to the point where human labor doesn't come into it which is your most expensive quote-unquote ingredient in anything that you make and then those when you are producing at that scale minuscule differences in price really affect your bottom line. So large scale producers are really looking for how can they shave a few pennies off of X, Y, or Z because a few pennies multiplied over millions of units translates into a huge difference in cost. And so there, there are whole departments looking for how do I make this product a few cents cheaper to produce. Uh, and I don't know that artisanal makers are ever looking at that. We don't have the bandwidth for it and it doesn't really affect our bottom line because we're not selling millions upon millions of units. So I would argue that an artisanal producer is not so um, sensitive to price fluctuations in the ingredients that they use, or they don't have enough bandwidth to really always be hunting for ways to cut price on their ingredients. So they're not, we don't have the bandwidth to, to figure out how do, how do I cut my bottom line? How do I continue to cut to be able to drive down the price of my final product? Do you think to the detriment of quality? Sometimes. So there's always a range of people who are looking for different products, right? There's 
um, somebody who's fortunate enough to go to the grocery store and be able to find the highest in quality organic ice cream. And then there's somebody else who, uh, you know, is trying to provide ice cream for their family of six on a certain paycheck. And, and so they're, they're, they have different price sensitivities. They're looking for different products and they, they should both be able to buy ice cream for their family. Right. So somebody who has a certain budget, there should be a product that they can buy. They should be able to buy a gallon of ice cream for, I don't know, six bucks versus somebody else who is not even looking for a pint for six bucks. Uh, and so the, the ingredients that go into each of those things is obviously very different and the quality is different, but there is obviously a customer segment that needs that product. So I'm not trying to disparage people, companies who make ice creams or frozen dairy desserts. So once you cut standards, there are certain standards provided by the FDA that something can qualify as ice cream. And there are a lot of desserts on the market that don't qualify. They can't call themselves ice cream. So there are different monikers for things like frozen dairy dessert or frozen non-dairy dessert. There's all these categories. So sometimes the ice cream that you're, the quote unquote ice cream that you're buying might not actually be ice cream. And for somebody who doesn't know, maybe that doesn't matter. But actually, that is a trend, right? I mean, there's a lot of ice cream. I've seen a lot of like ice creams where they're adding a lot of air because, oh, people care about calories, right? right. So are they called ice cream or are they call it frozen dairy dessert? If if they're adding enough air, then they have to call it frozen dairy dessert because that's the, that's the main definition for what qualifies as ice cream is it has to be a certain weight per volume. So if they're adding air to bring up the volume, then it's not going to meet the weight standard to be called ice cream. Yeah. And there's there's ice cream and then there's premium ice cream and there's super premium ice cream. And that is all based off of the percentage of dairy fat that is in that product. So like 10% is normal, 12%. All of the artisanal high quality ice creams that you're probably used to seeing are all 14 to 16% fat. What do you get with the higher fat? A mouthfeel? Yeah, it changes the mouthfeel for sure. And you're using more whole milk and cream as opposed to fractionated. So when you make ice cream, and I talked about substituting things that are cheaper. So you can make ice cream with, if you were going to make it in your kitchen, you would use whole milk and full fat cream and you would combine it. Whereas ice cream manufacturers on a larger scale use non-fat milk, cream, and non-fat milk solids to like bulk up what so you can always fractionate so if you're not going to use whole milk and whole cream what can you use that will combine to substitute for whole milk well you can use non-fat milk and add back solids to it and then if you can't get these particular solids what can you substitute to go into that and so that's this is how food science works yes, that is science <laughs> and so they figure out like how to fractionate something and then combine some other ingredients that might be cheaper to get you a substitute to get you back to something that functions like full fat milk. And right. That's how right on a large scale, what's the price of let's say vanilla these days and vanilla fluctuates. So if I'm not going to use real vanilla, what can I use? I can use vanillin. Okay. If vanillin is too expensive today, what can I use? And so on a large scale, manufacturers are looking for how can I substitute for this thing whereas an artisanal maker is just going to buy vanilla the price of vanilla today is 60 cents more expensive than it was yesterday the artisanal producer is most likely just going to buy the vanilla and then that gets passed on that cost gets passed on to the consumer yeah so what do you see as um trends in the ice cream world so right now, ice cream is having this artisanal boom the way uh, cupcakes had its artisanal boom five, six years ago. And I think that that is going to continue for quite a while. It'll be interesting to see how artisanal producers are able to scale like Salt and Straw is or um, Molly Moons out of Seattle. They have maybe three or four stores. And maybe following Jenny's model, right, where she started with two stores in Ohio and how she has been able to scale. What is interesting about 
different ice cream makers like Jenny's is they started as, and they still have scoop shops, but they also do a lot of retail and how that changes the product. And if they're able to continue to distribute their product and uh, keep the quality the same, that's always a, a concern for artisanal makers is as you scale. Um, and I think most people start with self-distribution. And then if you get bigger than that, how you take on a partner and how that changes the quality of the product that you're putting out and the compromises that you have to make in order to be able to scale your business and read it every step of the way. That's just something that each entrepreneur has to figure out. Each creator has to figure out how does this change the product that I'm making? And can I live with that change? Um, any unusual flavors that are popular in your your area or is it pretty straightforward? We do a lot of straightforward ice creams and that's really what makes us different than another artisanal maker like Salt and Straw or like Garden Creamery in San Francisco. They do a lot of very interesting mix-ins and also very interesting flavor combinations, right? Pairing like rosehip tea and or tomato, basil, watermelon, or right. There's a lot of salt and straw. (laughs) There's a lot of really interesting flavor combinations that make some really fantastic ice creams, but we're focused on making ice cream tacos. So we're going to take an ice cream. We're going to put it into a waffle cone shell. And right now we just do a basic waffle cone cinnamon flavor, but we have plans to, right. We can make a chocolate waffle cone. You could make a red velvet waffle cone. You can make different flavors of waffle cone. Um, so now we're going to ask you to pair that ice cream with a waffle cone that maybe has a different flavor to it and then dip it in a chocolate dip that adds on a different flavor. And then you're going to put toppings on it. So you're creating, it's essentially, you're creating like a Sunday. Yes. Yes. Um, and so if you were going to make a Sunday, and you're going to choose an ice cream to go in it. You might choose a different ice cream if you were going to put caramel sauce on your Sunday versus chocolate sauce on your Sunday. And so, asking a customer to make different flavor combinations themselves is a different proposition than here is a scoop of ice cream that has all of the perfect flavor balance because we've designed it that way for you. So just enjoy this um, versus create a sundae yourself. And so we start out with things that are simplistic that we, we design it so that your ice cream is going to pair well with at least one or two of the dips. So for instance, we do a mint chip ice cream and I, I personally think that that pairs well with three out of four of our dips. We have a peanut butter dip. Putting the mint chip ice cream into peanut butter is not something that my brain can comprehend. (laughs) No, that doesn't sound good. I love both those things. Right. That comes separately. They're fantastic together. It just throws my brain into like a spiral. Um, just because the flavors don't blend. So like if you take coffee and you mix it with chocolate, my taste buds and brain can taste it together like a mocha. But if you take mint chip and you mix it with peanut butter, my brain does not mix those two flavors. So when I'm eating it, I taste mint chip and then peanut butter and then mint chip and then peanut butter, but the flavors never blend for me. So that's an interesting, I would call it an outside the box weird combination. We do get a lot of people who order it and who enjoy it. And it wasn't just a mistake. Like I've seen people order it multiple times. It wasn't something they tried once and said, meh, that was a miss. I'll, I'll do something different next time. No, they keep ordering it because they enjoy it. But for, for we don't create, we try not to create a ice cream flavor that's not going to pair with any of the dips. And so along that vein, we don't do any we stay away from really interesting, complex ice cream flavors that we know people are going to tend to not want to put it in a taco. So the most challenging one that we have on rotation right now is matcha. So we make a vegan matcha ice cream. And a lot of people who come into the shop are very wary of putting it into a taco. They're happy to take it as a scoop, but we're going to ask them to put it into a waffle cone and then dip it in a chocolate. And a lot of people are, they're concerned. Like, what dip do I put this in? How do I make sure this is going to taste good? It's very concerning. Just concerning. <laughs> I don't know. I think that sounds delicious. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so we, we try not to make really complex ice creams. We also know that at the end of the process, you hopefully 
turn something that is a simple vanilla into it's vanilla dipped in peanut butter with coconut and almonds, right? So we are hoping that you've turned it into something more interesting than just vanilla um, so that we don't do it for you in the scoop. So we're not going to give you a, um, you know, Snickers, cookie dough, caramel ribbon, fudge, swirl thing in a scoop. We're just going to give you the you know, the vanilla with the fudge ribbon in it, that's enough interest for the ice cream. And now you build upon it as you make your taco. It's, it's actually like uh, the same problem Cold Stone goes through because uh, their flavors are pretty, pretty straightforward. Yeah. And then they have some wacky mix-ins. I right. mean, like right. gummy bears and right. you know weird <laughs> stuff like that. So like they have... That element of, oh, mixing on the on the marble, but right. And we've been back and forth like Cold Stone. When you walk in, they have sort of a, a menu where they tell you suggested, right? Like the, they have different names. Like this is the birthday cake remix thing. So you take this ice cream and you put in this mix-ins and this sauce, and this is what you get. We've shied away from telling people the combinations that we think go together. There's a, I mean, essentially there are endless combinations for how you combine, right? Especially because you can choose two different ice creams now to go in your taco. Um, you know, the ice creams that you choose, the dips that you choose, you can do half and half dip. So if you want white chocolate over your mint chip and then peanut butter over the other half, that's fine. So we, we try not to tell people this, this is how you should do it. It's a way to get them to interact. Yeah, we, some, I mean, we get the question all the time, well, what's the best thing? And people are always nervous that like they're they're not going to get the best thing. Um, and I always tell people to just start with an ice cream that you know you like, right? So taste the ice creams, figure out which one you like, and then we can go from there, right? So if you've decided that you really want the espresso or you've decided that you really want the peanut butter caramel, now I can suggest a dip for you to put on it. But I, I don't want you to walk in and for me to just tell you, oh, you should definitely get the espresso dipped in dark chocolate with almonds. While that's my personal favorite, I try to tell people... Well, you know, let's start with what you like, what we know that you like, or I'll toss out a bunch of different suggestions. So, you know, cookies and cream goes really great dipped in dark chocolate or mint chip goes really great dipped in white chocolate. But I try not to, to pigeonhole people into, right, this is what you should get. So let's, uh, let's get out of ice cream a little bit. Okay. <laughs> How about... What's your favorite meal? Like, what's your favorite foods? <laughs> oh. I think, I don't know if I had to choose a last meal. I might choose lasagna. Uh-huh. Um, and, okay, I might choose, like, day-old lasagna because lasagna is always better after you let it sit and let the flavors really melt together and then you reheat it. Is this like a lasagna from Trader Joe's or is this like a lasagna your mom made? Or Yeah, no, it should probably be homemade. Um, but you're willing to wait for it. That shows yeah. a certain element of patience, <laughs> yes. actually. I have, um, I have heard, I don't have enough willpower to do this, that chocolate chip cookies are best if you wait 48 hours that you make the dough and the dough sits. Same thing with like a lasagna. You let the flavor sort of everything mix together. I... With a lasagna, there's always leftovers. So it's not like I'm not having the piece on the first day. It's just that there's leftovers for the second day. But with chocolate chip cookies, I just, I end up baking them all. But I've heard that you, okay, if you need a chocolate chip cookie now, bake one or two, eat it now, but that you should let the dough rest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's how I, when I make chocolate chip, I usually put it in the refrigerator. Is that what you mean? Yeah, but for yeah. 48 hours. Yeah, I haven't done that long. <laughs> no. Maybe, actually, maybe four to six hours. I've actually done that. So, hmm, maybe I also don't have patience. <laughs> Who do you admire? So, I, I'm i not from the food world. So, there aren't a lot of, like, food uh, names, right, that I could toss out or um, that I admire. If I was going to choose somebody from the food world that I admire, it would be Anthony Bourdain. So somebody who has sort of stepped outside of a box and been adventurous and tried new things and really focused on the people element of food. I think that's the best part of food, right? That's, I mean, yeah, okay, it tastes good. But <laughs> the, the amazing thing about food is that it's a bridge, 
breaking bread with somebody. Right. Exactly. And that's, I think why, um, we're also, I think most people are very attached to the experience of food. It never really made sense to me, sort of meal replacement brands, companies where it's like, okay, we're going to give you all the nutrition that you need in this shake and you're going to eat, drink this instead of actually eating a meal. If you're fulfilling a need, right, you're trying to, you know, lose weight or gain weight or do whatever that, okay, but the enjoyment of food is completely lost then. And that, that doesn't really make sense for, for what the purpose of food is, at least in my mind. So yeah, Anthony Bourdain is somebody from the food world that I can say that I admire. Most of the people that sort of inspire me or I admire are scientists, right? And chefs are right in my mind chefs are scientists it's very similar to um, you're going to start out with a recipe in the kitchen or in lab you're going to start out with a protocol and then you're going to tweak it and figure out what works and what doesn't work and um, you know you have a hypothesis or something that you're trying to test something that you're trying to get to and you test it out and you see what the results are and then you make a shift so this was too salty or in the lab this led to this outcome, which is not what I was looking for. So you tweak something and you test it again. And so being a food scientist, being a chef or being a, you know, lab scientist, I think that there are similarities there. So what do you wish you knew 10 years ago? Huh. I think that there's, there's always value in the journey, right? So struggling through and figuring things out, getting a PhD really teaches you how to tackle a complex problem, pull it apart, figure out the little questions that need to be asked in order to answer the big question. And that is valuable in whatever endeavor that you're doing. So the piece of advice I got from the guy who runs La Casina, Caleb. So when I went with um, very first starting out, so this was 2012, so not 2008, but the advice that he gave me then would have been valuable in 2008. The advice that he gave is where do you see yourself? So you're starting a food business. What do you actually want to be? Where do you want to be? Do you want to still be in the kitchen? Is that what you really enjoy about the food business that you're thinking of starting, you like the process of making it, then you should just be a chef. You shouldn't start a food business because if you're, if that's the part of it that you enjoy, you're not going to continue to be able, you're not going to be able to continue to do that part. If you want to scale the business, that's the part that you're going to have to get the techniques and the recipe together and hand that piece off to somebody else who can do that part for you. So if you really are thinking about, do I want to run a food business is that the right move or right any part of, you know, at, you know, making that business plan? Where do you want, what do you personally want to be doing on a day-to-day basis and try to plan for that? Because if you really enjoy the creative part of making the product, you're not going to be doing that in 10 years. If you have a successful product, that's not the part that you're going to be working on 10 years from now. That will have been done in the first year. Right. So if that's the thing that you want to continue to do, then you should find a position that allows you to do R&D at a food company and always be creating those new products. So that piece of advice from Caleb, I think in 2008, to, to it's it's difficult because we're all on a path of self-discovery. I think that's one of the big problems with the educational system in the United States is that we require kids and maybe this is the way it is and other educational systems in other countries have their own problems, but to ask a kid at 18 to figure out and declare a major. What is it that you want to study, right? How many people are doing the thing that they majored in in college, right? And, right, that people feel like, you know, this is the thing that I study. This is the thing that I should be working in. This is the thing that I have to do for the rest of my life. Um, I think that because we're, you know, your your brain is not fully formed until you're 26, you're, you're, there's still major changes happening that you're not really a fully functioning brain until you're 26. But we ask you to make all these important life decisions about what you're going to study and what you're going to be when you're 18 or 19 or 20. And when you're, you know, figuring it out and going through college, that it's hard to do some self-evaluation and figure out what is it that I really enjoy? What is it that I want to do? And how do I make sure that 
as I'm growing this business that I get to do that thing, whatever it is, right? If you really love sales and you want to continue to do that, that's brings me back to the the question of, well, why don't you have a business partner or would you take on a business partner? I think that it would be important to find somebody who loves to do the things that I hate, right? Being a business owner, there's you're going to have to do everything at the start of it unless you have a business partner. And so you figure out the things that you're really good at, the things that you really like. And then you try to find somebody who really likes the things that, you know, make you want to blow your brains out. <laughs> Tammy. <laughs> I agree. T- Tammy does some of those things that I want to, yeah, blow my brains out. Yeah. 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 That's what makes us good business partners, Christine and I, because we're very opposites. I think it's really difficult to to have some self-reflection and some self-realization. And I think that as you get older and have more life experiences, you get better. Hopefully you get better at evaluating your wants and desires and balancing that against what society tells you should be or, you know, what other people in your life tell you should be, you know, what this is what you should be doing to really figure out, well, this is what makes me happy and how can I craft for an entrepreneur, a business around that, right? That I'm going to get to do the things that I really enjoy doing. That's the thing about being an entrepreneur and self-employed, hopefully, is that you get to sort of design the living that you want, the life that you want. You get to work on things that you're passionate about. And sometimes that comes along with doing things that you hate to support that thing that you're passionate about. Hopefully that period of hate is temporary and you get through it and it's right. There's always going to be something that you hate to do, but it's necessary to do for your business. But at the end of the day, you're working on something that you love and that you're passionate about. And that's what entrepreneurship really is about is for me doing something that fulfills a need in me. So as a scientist, I really enjoyed what I was doing, but there was never enough creative outlet in that. And so I always had some sort of creative project that I would be working on, you know, sewing or crafting, I, uh, you know, scrapbooking. There's always something that I had in my life that allowed for creativity. And, you know, at the end of my PhD, making ice cream tacos was my creative passion project. And so I was able to focus in on that and use that passion project as a means to learn about business development. And I always thought, right, most businesses fail within the first year, right? You always hear the statistics going in, especially, you know, restaurants and things like that are very volatile. And so I didn't really have big expectations at the beginning. And I figured if it failed, I would learn a lot. And I'm five and a half years in now and still learning a lot and figuring out how to scale it and and make it, make it go. And I... I always joke and hopefully it always just remains a joke that I haven't made a critical error yet. So I make mistakes along the way, obviously, but I haven't made a mistake that's big enough that I bankrupted the business or that I sank it or made it impossible to keep moving forward. And so hopefully I never get there. (laughs) (laughs) Bigger decisions are coming. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) for sure. Okay, now fun, fun stuff. This is the extra fun stuff. So this is the rapid fire. Oh, no. Ah! We're just looking for like, you know, a couple words, just one word. So it should be easy. Okay, you ready? Okay. Okay. If you were going to take a bath in a food, what food would it be? Cheese. (laughs) Are you surprised I didn't say chocolate? Uh, No, No. I don't know what you would say. I don't know what you would say, but it was certainly not. Is this fondue? I know, that's what I'm wondering too. Is this like uh, American cheese? Yeah. Is there chunks of cheese floating I think you need to tell us about this a little bit. Ricotta? Oh, there's some sushi. White cheese. Hence the lasagna answer from earlier. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Okay. Where do you like to travel just to eat? Italy. Yeah. 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 I was, so I, I went last year and it, this is the, the literal motherland. So I'm half German, half Italian. My mom is Italian. Um, it's the first time I've ever been to Italy. Every place you go, it's like, this was invented here. So, right. You go to, you know, Genoa and like, oh, this is where focaccia bread was invented or right. Like this is where, you know, Romano cheese. This is, this is where it comes from or truffles. This is where this comes from, right? Like every risotto, this is where risotto was born. Like all these things that I love to eat to go to the place where 
it was invented here. It's a regional thing here. I love the idea of regional eating and not that right. We're in an industrialized world now. I'm sure you can get any kind of pasta anywhere in Italy, but I love that by and large, the people in each region eat regionally. So if this is the type of wheat that is grown here or the type of grain. So they do chestnut flour pasta in also in Genoa and around that, that area. And that's the, the main, that was the easiest crop to grow. So that's what they grew. That's what they made flour out of. That's what they made pasta out of. And so that's the regional specialty there is that the pasta that you get is made with chestnut flour. And it's different in different regions based off of what grows, right? You're in the hazelnut region or you're in, you know, this, that, and the other region. I, I like to, to celebrate food and the flavors that, that are, you know, the, the farmers that grow it here. This is the, the soil makes for the best X, Y, or Z here, that this is the way you should enjoy something. So whenever I travel, I like to stand back and, look at what people are ordering, right? And try to figure out like, okay, th- these are the these are the tourists that are ordering in line. And then these are just the local people. What are the local people eating? Um, and so I, like when I enter a place, I'll just stand back and watch, right? And if I see six or seven people order the same thing, that's what I order. Very cool. I like this rapid fire. Very slow. <laughs> <laughs> Corn or flour? Flour. Hard or soft tacos? soft. You're on a desert island. There's every imaginable flavor of ice cream available. What are the three toppings you would bring with you? Fudge, marshmallow fluff, almonds. Very nice. Nice. Well, thank Thank you. you. Yeah. Lori, where can we find you? So our storefront, our uh, factory store is located at 2905 Park Avenue in Santa Clara. Do you still do markets? Yeah. So the food truck is out in about three markets a month currently. Um, so we have those regular dates. And then we also do um, different festivals around the Bay, food festivals, music festivals. Thank you, Lori Phillips from Rocco's Ice Cream Tacos. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Let Us Wrap with Christina and Tammy. Thank you to our engineer and producer, Jason Anthony Guy. If you like our show, please recommend us to your friends. Please have them subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever they get their podcasts. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please tweet us at Let Us Wrap Pod or email us at lettucewrappod at gmail.com. Take it away, Lori. Until next time, it's a wrap. <laughs>